So, um, here's the quiz. You ready? How did you practice during the break? If if anybody did, okay. No, go ahead. Uh, made other people feel welcome. You made other people feel welcome. Okay. Uh, I just tried sensing my body. <laughs> tried sensing the body. Okay. I tried um, sensing my emotions while I was talking to people. So tried staying in touch with your emotions while you were talking, while you were talking to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening very carefully to what uh, to whomever I was uh, listening to. Uh huh. So listening very carefully to whomever you were listening to. So being open and present very fully in a full way. Okay. Um, I would also try to stay in my body and no hearing and um, and just notice when I I would lose the mindfulness Uh and kind of get lost and caught up and then kind of wake up. Okay. So being aware of your body, being aware of hearing. I missed the third thing you said right in a minute. Sensations. And of other sensations. And then also to be aware of when you weren't aware. Okay. Anybody else want to add? Well, I um, met three or four new people that I hadn't really met before. So you met new people as part of your practice. Uh Great. I usually bring work or something. something I usually try to use every moment of the break in a practical way, so I decide to actually interact. Uh So you usually bring work and do some work during the break. Boy, I'm glad you didn't do that. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's liberating in and of itself. And so instead you interacted with people. So good, all good. All of this is good. Um, I I bring this up because I wanted to highlight that time as practice and I've been you know I've been being casual about it over the last few weeks few months actually saying you know practice during the break or pay attention during the break or something but I actually think it may be the most important time of the evening and in the sense that you know, the meditation has a certain structure that supports our being present. And even the form of being having a Dharma talk supports a certain kind of being present or presence. I, I believe that the hardest place for us to stay present, to stay awake, to stay open, to stay connected, to stay sensitive to ourself and other is when we're relating when we're doing the so-called normal things of life, the ordinary, the everyday, the, the mundane. And so, and I, I actually believe it's the hardest place for people to practice. 
or to people for people to stay awake. And so one of the things that we can do here is first of all just by acknowledging it, just by saying, Oh, this is practice also but not saying, Oh, you know, I thought, oh I could say, Oh, do a silent break. And that has a certain power, but that structures it in a certain way that takes us away from the um, mundane or conventional way that we usually um, go through our lives. We don't usually go to a party and have everybody be quiet. I mean, it, it, the parties don't work so well that way, unless they're very sophisticated people. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, and, so, and so the question for us or, or so just to start to shine some light or highlight this time um, I think might be very interesting for us as an ongoing practice as an ongoing uh, group as a place where we, we already acknowledge a certain shared value here and the value is waking up the value is whatever language you might use being free or being liberated or wholeness or the realization of love and compassion whatever language whatever way whatever it is that brings you here um, we share a certain value and so from that shared value we already are um, um, uh, how can I say it we're already um, uh, taking ourselves out of a kind of habitual way of relating. That our relationship here is not based on the convention of society. And the convention of society, you know, has its place and is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not exactly about being free. It's not about being awake. And so there's a different underlying or overarching value here that we share. And when we acknowledge it, then that becomes the basis for our relating. That the relating is actually assumed or, 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 or within the uh, uh, um, framework of awakening. And we can still have a good time. I, I, want, I want to make that clear. You don't have to get uptight or be tight or be stiff or be mindful so you watch each word that you say. You can be very relaxed. In fact, you know, one of the emphases in the meditation is to relax. And we want to let that relaxation and that presence and that awareness begin to um, shine forth in an embodied way. Um, when I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, I was, I was talking with a friend of mine and I said, oh, what should I talk about? We are on the phone about six o'clock tonight. I said, oh, what should I talk about tonight? He said, oh, he, he, he like didn't hesitate. Oh, bringing your realization into the world. Bringing your realization into the world. And I'm not exactly going to talk about that, but a little, just this teeny bit, which is what we're talking about here how to bring what we touch, what we taste in meditation, what, what begins to um, show itself as we as turn towards um, something that's true, something we love, what we care about, what we seek. 
when that starts, when we start to get a taste or a glimpse or, or an understanding, how do we live that? And this break, the break we have, is a great place to start to see, well, what is it like to live that? What is it like to embody the um, heartfulness we might feel, whether it's in a sitting or through a meditative meditation retreat or through our practice, a sense of connectedness? How do we live that? And I'm not asking, I'm not saying, oh, how do we live that as an intellectual idea? How do we stay connected to that? How do we let that express itself through us as we hang out, as we have some tea, as we you know, go into the courtyard and get some fresh air? How does the openness or spaciousness of meditation, the, um, the, the sense of being able to let everything come and go, how does that get embodied as we're talking about things that are actually really important to us? or that we care about. How do we, how does the sense of being centered or grounded or composed that comes with the concentration, that's one of the beautiful um, states of mind that comes with samadhi, really. The quality, part of the quality of samadhi which is often translated as concentration, how does that sense of um, freshness or wholeness, how does that make jokes? <laughs> right? Because, you know, it's sometimes we make jokes when we're hanging out. And I'm not asking for actual answers here. What I'm hoping to encourage is for your investigation or another way I could say it, your playfulness of not leaving whatever, whatever you value from the meditative process, don't leave it on the cushion. That's, that's just the beginning. Bring it in, get up with it. Speak from it. Listen from it. Joke from it. What is it that's speaking and listening and joking? What is it that takes things seriously, loves things deeply, passionately, wholly? What is it that's irreverent and pissed off at times? None of these are outside the realm of Dharma, none of what I'm describing. So a little bit, also, I was thinking tonight, um, what I was thinking was, oh, I would come here tonight when I was thinking about, well, what should I do? And I thought I'd take themes like I do. Sometimes I take themes from you and eight or ten themes, and then I try to weave a talk based on that. And then I thought, oh, what would I talk about if I gave the themes? And so I wrote down some themes. So I'm going to try to weave a talk based on what I would want me to talk about. And 
and what the first thing was the break to really why do why do I keep saying this you know the break is practice and it's because I think it's very very important place to start to erase the the line that starts to get up set up between sitting meditation and life sitting meditation and life as if sitting meditation is the goal sitting meditation is the tool Sitting meditation is a skillful means. It's a skill, uh, and it's actually a many multifaceted skill to be developed. Definitely, I want to encourage the sitting meditation. But if the goal was to just sit, then we wouldn't get up, right? We'd just sit, because that's the goal. But that's not the goal. The goal is to see what is it to live it, the goal is also multifaceted. So one facet is to awaken. Or let me back up. I'm going to back up. I'm going to downgrade a little. Well, one first facet is just to get here, just to get out of the past or future. Or maybe even if we downgrade one more level, it's to just see how much we get lost in the past and future how much we're involved with our mind and our ideas and our beliefs and our opinions and our what happened before and what's going to happen. I mean, we could just stay with that one facet. That's a very deep and powerful facet because it's so pervasive. It so much rules our reality. And so one, we could say one, one of the skills that mindfulness teaches, that meditation teaches, is actually how to be here, how to be present, and not lost in the past, not lost in the future, not lost in the idea that we have to reference everything that's happening through what's already happened. Not imagining that what's happening now is actually a replication of what happened before. Because in fact, each moment is fresh. Each moment is totally alive now. And the idea that it's like what happened before, that's an okay idea, you know, and it has its function. But the actuality of now is never the past. And so you'll, sometimes you'll hear people saying, as a meditation teacher, I'll hear this. Oh, you know, I've had this experience of anger a hundred times. I've always been angry like this. And there's a certain relative truth to that, but in actuality, the anger that's here right now is not the anger that's ever been here before. If we actually get present, it's fresh, it's alive, it's, it's, it's ephemeral in a, in a totally unstatic way. Suzuki Roshi said, he said, um, he said, when I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. When I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. And that's a beautiful, simple understanding of the truth of now. And it's good to get it right now and then when I say it again to hear it fresh when I say it next week in my talk and I forget that I said it the week before (laughs) 
And so there's a various skills. One skill is to learn how to be present. Um, just and, or, and pay attention to the thoughts, feelings, ideas, beliefs, all the um, content, the various narratives we end up taking to be reality instead of now. And then if we look from a slightly different angle, we're looking at what it means to um, develop samadhi. And I really like the word samadhi much better than concentration. Because concentration has too many historical and conventional understandings that aren't the contemplative understanding. It's not the Buddhist understanding of, of samadhi, which is really wholeness. And so samadhi, which often translated as concentration, has to do with becoming whole. So it's not just that you know we're aware of all these different things. We can begin to compose ourselves in a certain way that is whole, that is holistic, that is full, that is a, an awareness that's a full presence. And it's really a little bit when things start to fall away, when the, when the various... Um, involvements start to lessen or lose their grip with us. And, we're, we, and, we, and the, what we call now starts to fill consciousness. It starts to fill the awareness. That there's not a real separation between the two. There's more the energetic, somatic um, uh, aliveness that's here. And it's being known. It's it's composed. It's collected. It's actually peaceful. It's pleasant. And it's actually so pleasant you can get absorbed in it. You can get totally, totally um, um, relish it. Delight in conscious. It's the delight in consciousness itself. When consciousness, sometimes this word is used, becomes purified or concentrated. And here's where the word concentrated actually makes a little more sense. Purified or concentrated, like you know how they talk about orange juice concentrate. When you get the essence of something, that's much more than what concentration means in terms of samadhi that there's something essential here and it's good in and of itself. It's rich in and of itself. It's satisfying and nourishing in and of itself. And it is us. It's part of the nature of mind. Um, one of the things that I personally um, discovered was when I really learned about samadhi experientially, was like certain people I knew, certain teachers I'd had, I felt like, oh, I understood their minds. Certain teachers who were just not distracted. They were always like right there. And I felt like, oh, I understood that mind when I started to get a real taste of samadhi and how delightful that is, how pleasurable it is. And we seek it. We, we seek it. Sometimes people come to meditation and they say, well, I didn't have a good meditation. I couldn't stop thinking. And, you know, it's not so good. It's not so helpful at the beginning. Um, but there are times, especially further down the line, 
when thoughts can start to lose their strength, lose their power, and they just become kind of effervescent at a certain point. That can definitely happen. And it's, it's not a bad thing. It's very kind of pleasant to see, oh, we're not our thoughts. But if we... Um, so then the other piece, like sitting meditation, we're talking about the skills. One of the other skills we learn by sitting down and being present with whatever comes is learning about non-attachment, is learning about letting go. And letting go and non-attachment are skills. And practicing them, practicing them, which just means being aware. You don't have to let go. That's the good news. You don't have to let go. Just understand that nothing will stay. Really. And when you start to see, when we start to see that, then we're aligning with the way things are. Now, of course, let me, I should be a little clearer here. Let me see if I can be a little clearer. Which is that uh, letting go or non-attachment or non-clinging really has two, um, uh, uh, two aspects to it. One is not holding on, not grasping, but the other is not pushing away either. They're both considered clinging. To grasp on or to push away, they're both considered clinging. Either way, we're doing something to try to manipulate reality, our internal reality. And we may do a little bit at first, which we're doing just by sitting down. We're manipulating our reality. Just to do meditation is a manipulation. And it's a good manipulation. It's, it's a skillful manipulation. But once we sit down then, we, what, we want to develop the skill or the art, the capacity of being aware of what's happening and letting things come and letting things go. Now, of course, included in that, because this is a big... Mindfulness is... Even that's a... It's a big capacity. It's a big skill, we could say. Or it's a skill that includes everything. So it includes even our wanting to hold on or push away. You don't have to even get rid of wanting to hold on or wanting to push away. Can you be aware of that too? Can you let that come and go also? And so we start to pay attention to our hearts and minds from the perspective of something that's not bound by the content of our hearts and minds. And this takes us back a little bit to last week. Last week I talked about big mind or the nature of mind. And just I'll do it just a brief review. The main part of the review is conventionally we think of mind as the contents of mind. And in Buddhist practice, we th- use that as small mind, the contents of mind, our thoughts and ideas and everything that happens. But also we talk about mind in terms of big mind, which is the nature of mind itself. And part of the nature of mind itself is that it's aware. And we start to 
also highlight that awareness. Actually, what we do first is we align with the awareness. Mindfulness is a subset of awareness. It's the capacity that awareness has to focus in certain areas. So to be mindful of the body and breath is a, is a focusing of awareness. <coughs> At a certain point, mindfulness in some sense becomes one with awareness. It just knows what's happening. And remember we talked about um, awareness, the, this nature of mind as the mind as like a sun um, that shines without intending to shine. It's not something we do. It shines without intending to shine. And one of the examples I used was to say to you, um, stop being aware now. All right, everybody, I want you to do this. Everybody, stop being aware. Okay, anybody do that? How come? Pardon? It's not possible. It's not possible. There's something here that we're not manipulating. That we're not even doing anything with. That's doing us in some sense. There's something a little bigger than our ideas or our beliefs or our perspective or our view or anything in terms of our or me or mine. And so there's this capacity to know, the knowing capacity. And I mean know, I don't mean know like no knowledge in the conventional sense. I mean in the spiritual sense. Remember, knowledge comes from the root gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis is the, means um, the knowledge of spiritual mysteries. That when we start to come into contact with what's often referred to in Buddhism as big mind, a lot begins to open up or clarify for us about everything. It, re it really offers a different perspective when we start to see the nature of mind. So the question that came up for me, remember I'm doing my questions, was, well, if you know there's this awareness and the nature of mind, then how come you talk so much about being mindful of the body or mindful of the breath? And I thought, oh, that's a good question. And um, so here's, here's what I thought. I thought, um, some people do that. They mostly just point at the nature of mind. And that's a totally valid way to practice and do practice. The pitfall of it is that it often leads to a certain kind of, it can lead, not often, it can lead to a certain kind of um, disembodiment or disconnection that I don't think is so helpful. And, it's, and, the, and the tension here is between transcendence and transformation or transcendence and transmutation. And so, and this tension has been in spiritual practices and religions and teachings forever. And the tension is, do we transcend reality 
or does reality transform or transmute with practice? And I don't really, I don't really fall on, I'm like, I'm one of these both people. I like both. I like transcendence and I like transformation. Or even to say like, my understanding is that they're both very important. It's actually very important to begin to taste, have a sense, an understanding, a glimpse, an insight into the transcendent nature of reality itself. But what I've seen is that can get uh, what, what the the pitfall that can happen is then it can be a diminishment. It can end up diminishing the conventional. It can diminish the relational. It can diminish the humanness because the transcendence is valued over the ordinary. The transcendence is valued over the what's called the muck of human life. The transformative um, is really uh, the word that really de- describes it is tantra. And it's not tantra, it's not sexual tantra, although sexual tantra is actually a subset of that. Um, um, most people associate the word tantra with a kind of nouveau sexual teaching, which I'm sure has its value and place. Um, um, but the word tantra itself means weave, and it means weaving in every strand of life as part of practice. And so one of the, one of the nice um, quotes I like about tantra is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And so there's no transcend. It's not that, oh, we transcend this human life. We transcend these gross emotions. We transcend these passions. No, we actually, these passions, these, the grossness of life, the difficulty of life, the hardship of life, the um, ordinariness of life becomes the way. We, we chew it, we eat it, we digest it and it becomes transformed or transmuted through our presence and wakefulness and mindfulness. And so I like to actually emphasize the body and the breathing a lot because I I feel like it provides quite a ground for people both in their meditation practice and in daily life. That mostly I've seen people who are on the more transcendent side um, uh, there's a certain way they'll stub their toe often in daily life, often around relationship, sometimes around work, um, um, uh, sometimes around emotions, because that stuff is not, that's a little worldly, and they tend to have uh, either a conscious or generally an unconscious attachment to the transcendent or space as opposed to embodiment and earth. Um, I also believe that the body and the breathing provide a great ground for the meditation practice to then open and open to the transcendent. And the transcendent can be found right in the breath, right in the body, because the transcendent actually is everywhere. The transcendent is actually everywhere. And one of the one of the 
I believe one of the confusions is to think it's not right here. It's not everywhere. And often we, many of us have this idea it's somewhere else. It's in somebody else. And it's one reason why I love to work with the body is because the body is actually this beautiful manifestation of the transcendent. That we ourselves are a manifestation, our own embodiment of the transcendent. It's not even that we're an embodiment, even that's a little clunky in terms of language. We are the transcendent. <laughs> it's not that we're embodiment, you know, we are, we are it. We, we are what we seek, the wise ones say. And that can be discovered right through our body. You don't have to go any further than that. That's a little bit why I like to emphasize the body and the breathing. Now, the other question that came up, um, it really came up from a friend of mine who was talking about being disillusioned in spiritual practice. And he's somebody, he's done a lot, a lot of practice, you know, I don't know, 25 or 30 years and had a lot of realization, deep realization actually, profound. And, um, but he's hit a certain difficulty right now. And as I said to him uh, early today, I said, oh, spiritual development. And he, of course he was like, I hate you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's not exactly what you want to hear when you're having a really hard time and you've devoted your life to something and you feel like, oh, what does it matter? Which is, that's the level of kind of an existential angst that he's hit. And he's had a lot of experiences and, I mean, you, you name it, really. And... Um, and so we were, we were talking about it, we were doing some inquiry with it, we were looking at what's happening for him, and, and, and mostly we were trying to pull off, first of all, the judgments. Like, you know, he's done 30 years of spiritual practice, why is he feeling so disillusioned? You know, like he shouldn't be disillusioned, right? So this is the basic meditation stance that I was suggesting before. It's like, no, we make room for the disillusionment. That's not a problem. I mean, it may not feel so good, but it's actually not a problem. The problem is the judgment that we shouldn't feel this, that there's something wrong with feeling this, that it means something about us. You can tell already there's a problem if you think it means something about you. Right? It's so, and so something's happening for him. And, um, and, and I was, I was being playful. I said, well, you know what it is to be disillusioned. It means you lose your illusions. It's a good thing. But mostly, there's a part of us that doesn't actually want to lose our illusions. Our illusions are very comfortable. They're very familiar. They're how we know ourselves. And in some ways, we be, it's important to be very respectful of our illusions. 
We're not trying to break them or kill them or destroy them. I mean, that's sometimes that kind of language is used or pierce them or penetrate them. We're trying to understand what's true. What's the truth of our situation? What's the truth of what's here? And that truth includes our illusions because they're here. They're more, they're more the surface truth. They may not be the deepest truth of what's here, but they have their relative places that as human beings, and this is straight out of Buddhism, we are, have a certain amount of what's called ignorance or misunderstanding or ignorance, we could think of it as ignoring what's true. For one reason or another, we become entangled. The Buddha said, um, oh, it's such a good quote, who can untangle this tangle that everybody is tangled in? And that's a little bit what we're trying to do. We're trying to untangle all this ideas and beliefs and, and uh, um, um, these impressions that have formed us and the history and the conditioning that's kind of molded us, molded consciousness, when in fact consciousness is totally free at root, at core, is vast, is limitless. And we end up feeling like we're shaped a certain way. Me. This is me. This is who I am. And the me has a relative place and a relative truth, and it's okay. But it's not the depth, it's not the totality of who we are. Who and what we are is more limitless than that. Boundless, vast. And, it's, and so my friend was saying, well, I hate all these experiences I've had. And he wasn't totally, but he was, he was just letting it rip in a way that is, it's good to let it rip sometimes. Saying, I have had all these experiences, my heart opening and compassion and love, and I've had all these experiences of emptiness and freedom, and where are they all now? And who cares anyways? <laughs> and that's a, these are really good questions, actually. I, I remember at one time, this was many years ago, I was sitting, I'd been sitting a lot of retreats and I'd had some tastes of emptiness. And, and all of a sudden I was pissed. And I was pissed because I was like, oh, if everything's empty, why is there so much suffering? It just didn't make any sense to me. You know, because there's all this suffering, but if it's all empty, why? Why, why do we need to suffer like this? And I, I remember being at a retreat and I was, I was pissed. And I just, I kind of went at Jack Cornfield a little. I said, okay, so it's all empty. I get it, it's all empty. Why is everybody suffering? And Jack, who's a pretty good teacher, he said, <laughs> he won't answer me. He said, no, you have to sit with that. He said, he said it would be a disservice to take that question away from you. And of course, what did it mean to sit with it? Right? What, was, what was there? So the first thing is to sit with the anger. And this is where, this is where the, the tantra, the transmutation is so beautiful. 
Because the anger, if you sit with it in this way, it'll start to burn through. It has a power. It has a force. And, it's, and, and if we're not acting on it, if we're not attached to it, in other words, if we're not, if we're not just totally believing I'm angry and I should go hit Jack, right? <laughs> you know, and, 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 but letting myself feel the force or the energy or the power of the anger, it starts to clarify it starts to bring a certain um, sword-like quality to consciousness itself, which is a support for seeing what's true. We have a lot of, often have a lot of judgments about anger, but if we can actually get with the lived experience in the moment, not our ideas about the anger, not our beliefs, not our judgments about the anger, then it will begin to serve us on our path. We will have that power, that strength as part of our practice. So, um, let's see. So, yeah, I, I, you know, so I, I, I really, and, and periodically, one will become disillusioned in spiritual life. That's appropriate. If you're not, something's actually wrong. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go get disillusioned tomorrow. It means when it comes up, don't be too surprised. When you feel like, oh, it doesn't work anymore. That's not a bad thing. It's not supposed to work in the way you think it's going to work. In the way we think it's going to work. The Dharma has its own life. And ultimately, we learn how to give ourselves to the Dharma. And, let, and instead of us doing the Dharma, the Dharma does us. And part of it doing us means that we will be disillusioned at times. And so, you know, mostly with my friend, I was just getting him to uh, help him sit with it a bit, even though he didn't want to. And of course, as he sat with it, a certain kind of suffering went away. And then there was just the pain of the disillusionment. The seeing that there was some identity, some sense of self that really wanted it all to be perfect or clear or, or easy or something. And then as one sits with that and that starts to let go, then anything can happen. Because the sense of self that's been holding is now both being seen, being mind, one is holding that in awareness and not so identified at that point. And as things start to let go, anything can happen. Freedom starts to rise. Space starts to rise. Sense of openness starts to rise. A sense of presence starts to rise. There's already in the, in the consciousness, there's a kindness now. There's a care. Definitely on a Suzuki Roshi night. He said, I remembered this, I told my friend. Suzuki Roshi said, Enlightenment is not a state of mind. Enlightenment is not a state of mind. We so much look or think 
or imagine enlightenment through our ideas. And part of what will happen sooner or later is we actually have to let go of our idea about enlightenment. That enlightenment is going to be this state of mind that we always have or we're always in or we always have access to or that it's a thing. It's more no thing than a thing. And maybe at that point it becomes a different kind of who cares. Remember my friend was disillusioned. He's like, oh, who cares about all this stuff? But if you're really at the place of who cares, the real place of who cares, then there's a different flavor. There's a different feeling. If you don't have to get enlightened or not get enlightened. If you don't have to become something or not become something. If there's a freedom to let everything come and let everything go, then who has to care? Caring comes when it needs to come. When it, caring's not needed, you don't need to care. <laughs> and then, of course, then we care again at some point. And it's good to be very, um, not hold to any fixed idea or notion, but to enjoy the mystery of awakening, the mystery of being alive, the mystery of being human, of sitting here and being wherever you are right now, interested, confused, excited, bored. <coughs> The mystery of that arising now, fresh, alive, here, now, just now. So I didn't get, as usual, I didn't get to all my topics, but I got to a few. So let's sit for a moment before we end. May the merit, the goodness, the blessings of our practice here this evening, may we offer it generously, gladly, graciously for the benefit of all. May any merit of our practice go out like ripples in water, touching beings in this world, in every world.
May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the tragedy of war and fear, hunger, and the pain of division, racism, all the isms. From the suffering of ignorance and confusion, not seeing clearly, of not knowing who and what we are in essence. May all beings be free from suffering. May we all awaken. May all beings awaken. May we realize our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.